All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Everybody survived the week. What a crazy week we've been having here. Um, we are doing a, a series that we are calling Living in Exile. We've already, already talked a couple messages about this. What we're doing is we're going through the book of Daniel, which is a book in your Old Testament. If you're, you find the book of Psalms, which is almost in the middle of your Bible, just keep going a little bit more to the right. You'll eventually get to the book of Daniel. And we've been going through the book of Daniel here the last couple of weeks. And so if you've missed any of these messages, let me try to get you caught up because the last two decades have been really interesting, I think, for us as American culture. We now live in a brand new cultural moment. And everything that's been going on these last two or three decades has caused the ground beneath our feet to radically shift. And we're now into what sociologists describe as a post-Christian society. And it really affects everything about how we do life and how you view God and all those types of things. Now, we're talking about a post-Christian society. That doesn't mean that, that there are no more Christians left in America. It doesn't mean that there are no more Christians here in the Lake Travis, Austin area. We're, we're here this morning, right? Um, and so that's not what it means to live in a post-Christian society. It doesn't mean that the church is a thing of the past. That's not what it means when they describe a post-Christian society. What they mean is when they describe this as a now a post-Christian society is that secularization of the Western culture is now almost complete. And so the rise of secularism, which was really introduced several decades ago into the academic world, is now become very, very much intrinsic into the popular level in terms of how people view society. So in other words, the average 13-year-old who's grown up on Star Wars and Xbox and Pokemon Go now approaches life really without thinking about God, really without having this idea that God even exists. In other words, this 13-year-old never has to stop and consider, does God really exist? The increase of secularism hides the fact that God exists. And so as a result, the average 13-year-old just can kind of enter into life fully in this secular life. And so the question we've been talking about is then how do we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, how do we live in this post-Christian world? For most of us, this is a new question. But when you think about history, this question has had to be answered by people all over the world throughout history. I want you to listen to this letter from a disciple of Jesus to a guy by the name of Diognetus. This was written about 120 to 130 AD. And it goes like this. For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. For while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lost was, lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but are only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering, right? They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. Now listen to what this, he was writing this in 120 and 130 AD, this whole issue of being different in a culture that's all going in one direction, but you're going in another direction. Notice what he's saying, because he says what sets apart us as Christians is not whether or not you're American. American or French or African or Mexican. It's not your ethnicity. It's not the color of your skin. It's not your language. It's not your fashion. It's, it's not your diet. But what separates you and me, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what separates us is our way of life. 
But when you think about that, that means there's going to be, there's going to be tension in our lives. We're going to have to learn how to live with tension because on one hand, you're a citizen of the United States, and that means you're a citizen of this land. But on the other hand, you're a, what the Bible describes, you're a citizen of heaven. And Jesus says, then you're then a sojourner in this land. The word we would probably use in our culture today is that you're a refugee or you're a resident alien. And so for me personally, I have a U.S. passport, but that doesn't mean that my first and foremost loyalty and allegiance is to this nation. As a follower of Jesus Christ, my first and foremost loyalty and allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom. But in order to live that way, that means there's going to be a tension in our lives, right? And so when you look at Daniel chapter 3, it's this tension that this chapter is all about. Let's look at it here together. Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so let me stop right there real quick because here... Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He's the most powerful man in the entire world in charge, really, of the leader of the greatest global super military power of that time. And he creates this image of gold. Now, it doesn't say specifically what this image or the statue is in the image of. Some people think it's the, the image of or the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar. Some people think that it's one of the images of one of the Babylonian, many Babylonian gods. But the prevailing thought for most scholars is that it was some sort of image that represented Babylon itself. Now think about that. Because here, the king of this nation, he creates this image that represents Babylon itself. It's the national symbol for Babylon. And so what they're bowing down to, what they're worshiping, is the nation state of Babylon. The greatest nation on earth at that time. And all of Babylon has has assembled in front of this statue, including all of the who's who's of Babylon, and they all bow down. Well, or do they? Look at verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And so picture this. In a sea of people, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people bowing down to this image, there are three Jews who remain standing. Now, I want you to notice, though, the attitude in which they do this because they're quiet about it. They're not yelling and screaming. They're not holding a protest. They're not holding up signs. They're, they don't have bullhorns, and they're, they're not creating this rally to march on the capital steps of Babel. That's not what's going on here. There's none of that. The king doesn't even see it. The king doesn't even notice that it's happening there. But the Chaldeans, who are the work associates of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they come and tattletell on their co-workers. You think you have a problem with your office co-workers. I mean, talk about office backbiting here. Look at verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? 
Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to, to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, I want you to notice Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to this cultural test because they aren't angry, they're not hostile, they're not throwing a tirade, they're, they're respectful in all this, but yet they're totally resolute. But don't, don't, don't mistake that to mean that this is not a big deal because to not bow down to this idol meant that it was a deeply subversive act and it was going against the, 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 the status quo. This was a threat to what everybody else was doing. This was an enormous moment, which is why verse 19 says that Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's man was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. But this is not the end of the story. Look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor the hair, a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. It's kind of funny because he has kind of like this God encounter in his life. But look at, how, look at how he responds to this. Verse 29, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who says anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save them in, in this way. I mean, he has a little bit of a God, but boy, does he have no love or mercy there. He's, he's still in trouble. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, how many of you have heard this story before? Maybe you have a church background or something. How many, how many of you have heard this story before? If you're old enough, maybe it was done with the little felt little things that were on these little boards in, in churches, if you're old enough to remember that, or the picture Bible or something like that. But when you think about it, this is not a children's story. Because I want you to think about what the story is exactly about. Because honestly, this is a story about the two most taboo topics in our society today. It's about politics and religion. And probably just saying those two words together may have just turned your stomach. I mean, because we have just gotten through what analysts are describing as the most grueling election in American history. And for so many of us, it's put a bad taste in our mouths, and it's really polarized the nation. And so my guess here, even in this room, there's three groupings of people. Some of you that are here, you're elated and excited as the results of what happened on Tuesday. Some of you that are here this morning are probably devastated and maybe even afraid of of what happened as a result of Tuesday. And there's some of you who are sitting here thinking, what in the world just happened on Tuesday? Those are kind of the three groupings of people that, that are in our nation right now. But no matter how you feel today, I think it's really important for you to remember that this is still a post 
Christian society in which we live in. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I said this last couple of weeks, that statistically speaking, you're now in the minority. For the very first time in American history, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in the minority. This existed before the election, and the election didn't change any of that. We've been talking about, then what does it look like to be an exile, to be somebody who's different than the majority of the culture? The problem, though, I think is, after Tuesday's election, is that if you voted for Trump, you probably feel a little little less of an exile today. And maybe hope has even returned into your heart. But if you voted for some other candidate, you probably feel more like an exile than you did a week ago. And maybe you are filled with fear and hopelessness is beginning to crowd your emotions. But here's the thing I want to remind you here this morning. After the events of this last week in this grueling election, I want to remind you that as Christians, our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is not in a president. Our hope is in God. That is where we put our hope. That's where we put our trust. Not in the political system. Not in whoever becomes presence. They come and they go, as the Bible describes. They're like the water course that God changes. Our hope is to be in God, firmly established in God. And so when we fall into this trap of mixing politics and religion together, we find ourselves really in the exact same position as the people there that was happening in Babylon. Because Daniel chapter 3 is really about nationalism. And nationalism is where you, you try to bring together politics and religion. They join up together. Now, I'm not talking about patriotism. Patriotism is different. Patriotism is when you cry at the singing of the Star Spangled Banner. Patriotism is when you wear red, white, and blue 365 days of the year. Patriotism is when the, when the ringtone of your phone is the song, I'm Proud to be American by Lee Greenwood. That's what patriotism is. And it's fantastic for us to love our country. This is an amazing country. That's what patriotism is. But nationalism is different. Nationalism is when we mix politics and religion together. It's where the kingdom of God is swapped out uh, for your political party. It's where Jesus is swapped for your candidate of choice. It's where Jesus' ways of love and mercy and forgiveness and self-sacrifice are swapped out with anger and hate and fear and self-preservation. And all of this occurs as secularism increases. And this is what we've been experiencing over the last two or three decades in our nation. Secularism has just been increasing and increasing and increasing. And when secularism increases, hope in God decreases. As secularism increases, hope in the church decreases. As secularism increases, hope in the kingdom of God decreases. But here's the thing about hope. Hope needs to go somewhere. It's just the nature of what we do as human beings. Hope. We need a hope. It's, it's the only way we can live is we have to hope. And so when secularism has increased and when there's no more hope in God, then what happens is that we end up then putting our kind of messianic hope into politics and politicians. That either intentionally or unintentionally, we attach our hope to those things that are kind of bigger than us in terms of government. And so to put this simply, nationalism is the idolatry of the state. It's the worship of the state as a pseudo-god. And here's the thing. There's nothing new about nationalism. It's been around for thousands and thousands of years. It's been used by kings and queens from all sorts of nations in every point of history in order to consolidate power to bring a larger grouping of people, a larger grouping of area under one rallying cry. And so here in Daniel chapter 3, this is what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar has this massive empire that spreads from Egypt to almost India. And he's, he's conquered all these nations and all these different people groups and all these different languages. But there's no internet. There's no TV. There's no social media. So if you're, if you're King Nebuchadnezzar, how are you going to consolidate power? How are you going to get them all to be like a one grouping of people? Well, you do this by some, creating some sort of civil religion. It's what's been done for thousands of years. You create some sort of civil religion that everybody has to bow down to. Oxford professor John Lennox in his book Against the Flow, he says it this way. He says, it is an all too familiar scenario as history repeatedly testifies. The attempt to harness religion in the interest of a totalitarian state by making the state an object of worship. Once God is pushed out of the picture. Something has to step into that void. You hear me? When, when culture pushes God out, 
Something has to step into that void. And this is what's been going on in our culture, right? In our generation, that secularism has increased and it's pushed God out. We push God out of the public schools. We push God out of the public arena. God's been being pushed out in every area of American life. And for a lot of people then, when that happens, when something steps into the void, the thing that steps into that void for a lot of people is a political party or a political candidate. The problem that I think for us as Americans is that we don't really see this as happening. We don't really pay attention that politics and religion are kind of merging together. Yes, I see it in ancient Babylon. Yes, I see it in British imperialism. Yes, I see it in Nazi Germany. Yes, I see it in communist Russia. Yes, I see it in China and and North Korea. But nationalism, that's not a problem here in America, is it? I think we have a hard time seeing it as an issue for us. But the reality is, number one, nationalism is a huge part of our American culture. It's everywhere if you stop and think about it. Nationalism is a part of our American culture. We read about a 90-foot statue in Babylon, and we kind of laugh it off as being something pre-modern and and primitive. But yet, what do we have in the New York Harbor? It's a statue, right? Right? The Statue of Liberty, it is our national symbol of liberation, our national symbol of freedom. Do you know how tall it is? Well, it's not 90 feet tall. It's 305 feet and 6 inches tall, actually. That's how high it is. It's over three times the height of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And now we don't really bow down to it, do we, as Americans? We don't really bow down to that statue, but what do we do? We take our vacation time and we go to see it for ourselves and we take selfies in front of it. Nationalism is just, it's just a part of our culture. I mean, think about um, the national anthem at a sporting event. Here in this incredible somber moment, the, the rowdy, ruckus crowd goes silent. The music starts. Everybody puts their hands on their hearts. What's going on? It's a worship song. But oh, wait, it's not worshiping Jesus. What are we worshiping? Well, if you know the words to the song, which you all do, it's about war and the triumph of our nation. That's what's happening there in that moment. Think about the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Have you ever stopped to think, what does that mean? What does that really mean? As a, what is my relationship to that oath, to that pledge as a follower of Jesus Christ, whose my loyalty and allegiance should be first and foremost to the King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Now, I'm not saying any of this is bad. Please don't miss hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying any any of this is necessarily bad, but what I'm saying is that we still do it. Nationalism is still alive and well in this greatest nation on earth. It surrounds everything that we do. And the second thing is that nationalism, I think, is a huge blind spot for the American church. I think for the American church, we just don't see it as an issue. We don't really see the conflict. We don't really see the tension. But when you think about it, Blind spots has affected every generation of the church. In 18th century America, we think, you know, how in the world could the church be so blind to slavery, that, that, that slavery was actually okay? We look back and think, how in the world could they do that? How could, how could the church just accept that slavery was okay? We look at back on 19th century England and we think, how in the world could the church just sit by and think that colonialism was okay? But the thing about a blind spot, by definition, is that it's something you can't see. That's the essence of what a blind spot is, something you can't see. There's something that's just a few feet in front of you, and it's lethal, but you can't see it. It's a blind spot. And I think that's what nationalism has become, even for the American church. We haven't seen, we haven't paid attention that culture has shifted, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're now in the minority for the very first time in American history. We haven't paid attention that secularism has increased and God's been pushed out of our culture. And so as a result, this whole issue of nationalism has taken the place of God, where we bring God and politics into the same picture. Gregory Borden, in his book, um, The Myth of Christian Nation, he says it this way. He says, the myth of America as a Christian nation with the church as its guardian, has been and continues to be damaging both to the church and to the advancement of God's kingdom. Among other things, this nationalistic myth blinds us to the way in which our most basic and most cherished cultural assumptions are diametrically opposed to the kingdom way of life taught by Jesus and his disciples. Instead of living out the radically countercultural mandate of the kingdom of God, this myth has inclined us to Christianize many pagan aspects of our culture. 
Instead of providing the culture with a radically alternative way of life, we largely present it with a religious version of what it already is. That's something, uh, I wish I had time just to kind of dissect this because I just find it so true. The merging of church and secularism, the merging of God and state, and, and we not, we're not even recognizing it. We don't even see it. We still look at America as some sort of Christian nation, and therefore I should be loyal. There should, my, my allegiance should first be to this Christian nation, but there's no such thing as a Christian nation. I want you to listen to Old Testament scholar Temper Longmon. He describes it this way. He says, we need to remind ourselves that no modern nation, whether America, England, Korea, or whatever, is in the situation like Israel. America is not a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. America is more like Babylon in Daniel's day or Rome in Jesus' day than it is like Israel. When you read through the Old Testament and you look for a parallel for the nation in which we live, don't think of Israel under Moses and the Torah. Think Babylon. Think Rome. Think Alexander the Great. Now, this is not to say that America is evil. Please, again, don't mishear what I'm talking about. Um, a lot of America is great. I've traveled all over the world, and I do think America is the greatest nation on this planet, for sure. I mean, have you even gone to one of the, the, the Austin restaurants around here? I mean, go, go to It's All Good, and you can't tell me this nation isn't great. <laughs> it's an incredible nation that we live in, but America is not the kingdom of God, folks. America is not the kingdom of God. America is an empire, just like Babylon was an empire, just like Rome was an empire. America is an empire as well. And just like all empires, America and its way of life has been elevated to the role of a de facto God. Inadvertently, we're, we're looking at our, our, this incredible nation, the greatest nation on this planet. We, we have elevated it to a de facto God. And so Daniel chapter 3, when you look at Daniel chapter 3, it's a story of how to live in the shadow of an empire. How do we actually do this? How do we live in this nation that has shifted so radically underneath our feet? Because as followers of Jesus Christ, whose loyalty and allegiance is first and foremost to the King, King Jesus, and to His kingdom... How do we live in this overwhelming pressure to do what everyone else is doing? That's what this is about. Look again in Daniel chapter 3, verse 8. He said, At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to worship what everybody else was worshiping. They refused to bow down to what everybody else was bowing down to. In other words, when everybody else was going against something that went against God, when everybody else was, was doing something that went against God, they refused to participate. They refused to participate. Culture's heading this direction, and they said, no, I can't go that direction. They refused to go the direction of, of culture. I have a picture up here on the screen, if you can see this here. Look at this, this picture. This was, was taken in um, the late 1930s in um, Nazi Germany. And it's an incredible picture because you see all of these men, and there are some women in there too, that, that are all chanting Heil Hitler with their hands raised. But in this picture... There's one man who does it differently. I don't know if you can see him. Go to the next picture here. His name is August Lahnmesser. And one man in a sea of people whose legions and loyalty was to their king, Adolf Hitler. One man went, mm, nope, not going to do it. Think about that. We know the pressure now, looking in retrospect, of the nation of Germany and what happened to people who resisted the Nazi movement. But in the sea where the pressure must have been great to give your loyalty and attention to that dictator, there was one man that says, nope, not going to do it. There's another story from World War II about a guy by the name of Andre Trochme, and he was a French Anabaptist pastor in the 
in the town of Le Chabon during the Nazi invasion. At one point during this invasion where Germany had taken over France, Nazi commanders demanded that the city round up all the Jews and deliver the Jews then into the hands of the Nazi party. Well, Trochme, on behalf of the city officials, he writes this letter back to the Nazi commanders and he says this, We have learned of the frightening scenes which took place three weeks ago in Paris, where the French police, on orders of the occupying power, arrested in their homes all the Jewish families in Paris to hold them in the Valdive. The fathers were torn from their families and sent to Germany. The children torn from their mothers, who underwent the same fate as their husbands. We are afraid that the measure of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in the southern zone. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews. But we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born in another religion, receive the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received, and we would try to hide them as best we could. We have Jews. You're not getting them. I love that. I love this stance that the city and this, this pastor takes. Chokmai was later in prison. Thankfully, he survived. It's estimated they saved the lives of 3,500 Jewish men, women, and children. How? Non-participation. We have Jews. You're not getting them. You can imprison me. You can, you can kill me. But no, we have Jews. You're not getting them. It's an incredible stance when all of culture is heading in one direction. When everybody is doing the same thing, for one man, for one city to say, no, not going in that direction. Obviously, I think that's a kind of a dramatic illustration of this because most of the time, non-participation is much more ordinary and run-of-the-bill. You're going out on Friday nights with some drinks and food with some friends and most of them aren't followers of Jesus Christ, and you have something to drink, you have something to eat, and you're having fun. It's a, it's a great night, and server comes back for round two. Who wants another round? Round three, who wants another round? Um, no, I'm good. You don't want another, you don't want another, another shot? You don't want another round? No, no, I, I'm good. It's, tomorrow's not a work day. You know, why don't we go ahead and get plastered here? To, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I, no thanks. Or... You're a bit in a business meeting, the proposal that on the table is a, a bit shady, and, and the question comes, you're going to go along with this, aren't you? I mean, I know this is a little bit not so ethical, but this is just the, the direction that the industry is going, so we need you to sign off on this. Um, no, I can't do it. Well, there's nothing really bad. Every, every, everybody in this industry is going this direction. We just need you to no, I, I, I can't do it. Or... You're in a conversation with a classmate or a coworker about this guy uh, that you're dating. You're talking about how perfect he is and how you think this is the one. And the inevitable question comes up, well, are you living with him? No, we're not living together. Well, why not? Are you, uh, why aren't you living with him? Well, we're not having sex together. We're not sleeping together. Well, well how in the world can you do if this? How are you going to know this is the, the perfect guy for you if you're not having sex, how, sex with him? How are you going to really know if he's compatible for you? Well, well, we're followers of Jesus Christ, and we have a high standard for sex and marriage, and we're going to wait until we get married. Non-participation, the flow of culture is going one direction. It's, it's just this quiet rebellion against the status quo. It's not on the soapbox. It's not a get in your face, scream at the top of your voice type of thing. It's just this quiet rebellion against the status quo. No, not going to do that. I'm not going to go that direction. When everybody else is heading this direction, when you stand and say, nope, I'm not going to do it. And here's the thing, folks. Every day, I think it's just, it's going to get heightened and heightened. Every day, you're going to be faced with a battery of decisions of what are you going to choose? Is your allegiance going to be to Jesus and to the kingdom of God? Or is it going to be to the idolatry of America and the American way of life? And what I think is going to happen is that it's going to require a whole lot of wisdom and discernment on your part to navigate this post-Christian society. This is new for us here in America. Now, cultures all over the world have had to do this before, but for us as Americans, this is new. It's going to take a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment on your part. And you need to wake up just a little bit because this nation that you thought was going in the same direction that you were, people who you thought were going the same direction you are, it's no longer the case, folks. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're now in the minority. 
People aren't going the same direction that you are going. And so it's going to require a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment on your part to navigate this post-Christian world because there's a lot of gray areas out there. There's a lot of gray areas out there, and you're going to have to be able to stand up and say, yeah, no, I'm not going to lie to make this sale. Yeah, no, I'm not going to sleep with you. Yeah, no, I, I know this is legal now, but it's, it's not for me. You have to be able to stand and be able to make that decision. But I think it's important that I tell you that if you're going to do that, you need to know, you need to know a couple of things about non-participation. Number one, it will upset people. It's going to upset people around you. Why? Because no matter how quiet and respectful you are, non-participation carries in its foundation a critique of the status quo, a critique of where everybody else is going to. So as quiet and respectful as you may be, it's going to upset a few people. Look again in Daniel 3, verse 19. It says, And Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and the commander some, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. See, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's, their non-participation, it infuriated Nebuchadnezzar. And you know what the same, I think, is, will happen to you. If you take that stand and say, my allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom, you're standing up against a different flow that's happening in the rest of society. And so your non-participation with the status quo will make people feel defensive, will make people angry, will make people insecure, and maybe even hostile towards you. And then the second thing you need to know about non-participation is that it will cost you. It will cost cost you. Look again, Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this non-participation was going to cost them the ultimate cost of their life. If God wasn't going to intervene and they had no guarantee if he was going to, it was going to cost them their life. And you know what? Your non-participation against the status quo that's going in our culture right now, it might cost you that sale. It might cost you that promotion. It might cost you your job. It might cost you that friendship. But you know what? Around the world today, it's estimated that there are 270 Christians who give their life for their faith. Every single day in this world, 270 Christians are killed for their faith, where they simply just said, no, not going to give in, not going to go the same direction as called. 270 Christians a day are killed for their faith. From the years 2000 to 2010, it was estimated that over 1 million Christians gave their life for their faith. It's the largest number in all of history. This was just 2000 to 2010. I mean, this is our generation, right? And over a million Christians gave their life for their faith. No, not going to give in. Nope, not going to go that direction. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. In other words, if, you'll just, if you just go along with the world, what it, the world's going, the culture, what's going, they're, they're going to love you for it. No, no, no problem there. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. This is what Jesus said. He said, this is the way it's going to be. If you're going to stand against the tide of culture, culture's not going to like you for it. If you'll go with culture, people are going to applaud you and say, yeah, way to go. Way to be a man. Way to be a woman. Way to, way, way to come along with us on there. But if you stand up against that, the world's not going to like you. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I look at this and I kind of have to chuckle because the Apostle Paul, he just says it so matter-of-factly. Yeah. If you're going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're, you're going to be persecuted. That's just, that's the way it's going to be. But I don't know if you've noticed 
that I don't think we put this on our church advertisements or in welcome parties. I don't think we create these plaques or these pictures that we frame when we put up on the wall in the church or in, in your house. You will be persecuted. I don't think we do that because why? Because I don't want to be. I don't want to be persecuted, right? But both Jesus and Apostle Paul says, if you're going to go against culture, you're going to be persecuted. People aren't going to like you for it. You may have to actually give your life. But this does beg the question, if you're not being persecuted, then are you actually living a godly life in Christ Jesus? Look at the end of the story. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the people's nations and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Think about what's going on here. This man that was ready to kill these three men who stood up and said, no, not going to go in this direction with you. I can't bow down to this. I can't worship the state of Babylon. The same man who was willing to throw them into that furnace, look at the turnaround. Why? It was all because three men, that was it. In the sea of men and women that were bowing, three men stood up and had the courage. Three men had the backbone say, nope. Not going to do. I can't do this. I can't worship your God. I can't worship and bow my knee to the state of Babylon. Yeah, it's a great nation, but my allegiance and my loyalty is not first and foremost here. No, I can't do that. Now, I want you to notice something here this morning. If you'll look around the room, because there's more than three people here this morning. All it took was three people to change an entire nation and turn, and turn a king. All it took was three people. There's more than three people here this room, and if three people could change an entire nation, what do you think we could do here in our city, in this region? If we would just simply stand up and say, no, not going to go in that direction. I want to ask you just to close your eyes here this morning. Because I think for so many of us, this, this whole election season, and, and, and obviously on Tuesday, the election itself, has caused just a turmoil of emotions, maybe positive, maybe negative, but may, maybe both positive and negative. But I really think it's a good eye-opening event because remember, as secularism increases, it affects your hope. And that's what's been going on in our culture now for two to three decades. Secularism has been increasing and our hope in God is affected by that. And maybe you can, you can see it. You can see how your hope has been affected by it. Where it starts destroying your hope in God. It starts destroying your hope in the church. It starts destroying your hope in the kingdom of God. And because hope has to go somewhere, maybe you have fallen into that trap of putting your hope into politics or politicians, into government or into economies or, or your job or your spouse or your family or your friends. Hope wants to attach itself somewhere. But here's what I think. When I'm quiet enough to let God and his peace begin to stir in my heart, what I believe God is wanting to do is that he's wanting to restore our hope in him. And maybe for you, your hope got destroyed because of something bad that happened. Maybe your interaction with Christians or, or church or situation, we feel like God failed you. God didn't jump in in that situation. God didn't save you in that situation. You tried to stand, but it just felt like everything failed. I, I believe God wants to restore your hope, not in some sort of mystical something down in the road, but today. As I was praying for you this week, that was the very thing that I felt like God wanted to do in your heart. He knew you would be here, and he wants to restore your hope. In Psalms 42, it says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living 
God. You know, maybe for some of you, you, you've experienced that in the past where that's how hungry you were for God. This is the psalmist described as deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Maybe that's something that you've experienced in the past, but for whatever reason, that's just gone dry. You no longer have that hope in God. For some of you, maybe here, you've never experienced that before. But the restlessness that's happening in your soul, maybe all the, the politics has just gotten you fed up and you're looking for something bigger than what's just happening around you. I want you to know that God wants to meet you right where you are. My tears, verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? Maybe that's how you feel. Hopelessness has come to that point where you're just, you're just at the end. God, where are you in all of this? What's happening in our nation? What's happening to my family? What's happening to me? Maybe that's where you are here this morning. My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive crowd. Maybe you can even remember where it felt like you were in the majority, where it felt like you weren't in exile, where it didn't feel like you were going against you. Maybe you can remember where it felt like everybody around you was going towards God and they wanted God. Maybe that's, maybe that's you and your, what's happened? What's changed? But look at how the psalmist responds. Verse five, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed with me? I think that's where you have to start. You have to start. Okay, Russ, why are you so downcast? Russ, why are you so disturbed? What's, what's going on? And look what he says. Put your hope in God. For I know I'll yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning. Father, for that desperate one who feels completely hopeless. With all these things that are crowding around. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, that your very presence would come and that the peace that surpasses the understanding of what's happening around us, that God, your peace would come and be an anchor to every man and woman's soul right here. That Holy Spirit, that you would come in the midst of so much change, in the midst of so much hostility and anger in our nation, so much fear in our nation. That Holy Spirit, you would come and bring peace that goes beyond what we can grasp that we can know. Father, you would restore hope. That hope in you would be restored. That God, that you just grab a hold of every man, woman, and child here today. And God, you would bring them close to you. And where politics and religion has mixed all of this up, Father, I pray that you'd be that dividing line. That God, that our loyalty and our allegiance would be to you and to you alone. That that's tension of living as a citizen of America, but yet a citizen of heaven. That, Father, that we wouldn't relinquish that tension. But, God, we would be able to stand in the midst of that, in the midst of two worlds and direct people towards you. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Just as August Lanmaster did. Just as Andre Trokme did. The God, we would stand against the rush of culture and the stream that wants to carry us down so quickly. 
that Father, all across this room, that men and women would be able to rise to their feet and say, nope, not going to do it. Nope, I'm not going to go that direction. That Father, we would not participate in the culture and the things that culture is wanting to drag us into. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring courage to these individual souls. Just as courage and boldness came into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when everyone else bowed, that God, this holy courage and boldness would come upon us to be able to choose you over everything else. Father, I pray right now that by your spirit you would come and just overwhelm, bring hope, bring truth into the midst of our souls. What we're going to do here, because I want to make sure you have enough time just to let God do what, he's, what I think he's doing in your heart. We have communion stations up front that I want to welcome you to at any point. You can come up and serve yourself. We're not going to do it in any sort of ordered way. The worship team is just going to kind of lead us here. If you want to sit, if you want to stand, if you want to worship, if you want to kneel, if you want to come take communion, I'm just going to allow you just to have this moment where you can personally have this moment with God and make a choice. Maybe for some of you, this is your first choice in terms of you've never really made a decision to follow Jesus. And maybe something's stirring inside of you here this morning, and you know you need to make that choice. The Bible is very clear. It's very simple. It says, if you'll just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, with your mouth, you say, okay, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe you are the Son of God. That with your own mouth that you would declare that. Not your parents, not a church, not anybody else. You, that you make that confession. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, us as you will be saved for all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe that's right where you need to. You may start right at the beginning. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time in a long time where you're needing to come back and put your hope and put your, your trust, put your faith back in God. And right there, just settle it with God. Like I said, communion's up here for anyone who want to be a part. Let's just worship team. Why don't we just kind of all stand here? Let's kind of sing this here, the song. It's kind of encouraging your soul here together.